Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day. What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. We talk to a lot of artists on the show. Painters, poets, designers, comedians, folks smashing the Chicago art scene. There are so many local creatives that I could spend the rest of my life talking with them. And what's lovely is that some of them are right here at Chicago Public Media, like Ayana Contreras. You are tuned to Reclaim Soul. I'm your host, Ayana Contreras. That was Mavis Staples. From She's the host of the Reclaimed Soul on WBEZ's sister station, Vocalo. But Ayana has worn many hats here at WBEZ. She co-hosted the show Global Overnight and produced several other shows, including The Barbershop Show with Richard Steele. Well, this is The Barbershop Show. My name is Richard Steele. We're live from Carter's Barbershop in Chicago's North Lawndale neighborhood. Just about... Very good. And Sound Opinions, hosted by Jim DeRogatis and Greg Cott. This is Sound Opinions. If you love music like we do, then you've likely got a set of songs that define who you are. And perhaps most notably, Ayana was a major key in creating our sister station, Vocalo. You've never heard radio like Vocalo 91.1 FM. Keep us going strong. Join our movement. And has been the content director for the past three years. On top of that, Ayana is a curator, a prolific DJ, and overall culture creator, both documenting and embodying the past and present of Chicago's art scene. You would not believe her antique music and clothing collection. I mean, I have 10,000 records, and I enjoy playing records. In the sense of fashion, I'm a big, like, sustainability girl. Like, I don't believe that we all we need to buy the new hot thing all the time. Most of the things that we think about in terms of trends are something that is a remix of something that's happened before. I sat down to talk to Ayana about the profound influence she's had on the city and its influence on her. It all started with her growing up in the western suburbs. So I grew up in a house that my family built, um, came up on the Underground Railroad, so a super old house, a lot of history, a lot of records, a lot of books, okay. a lot of magazines, a lot of ebony magazines. And <laughs> so I feel like I'm a product of that house in a lot of ways. Ayana is an author, too. She grew up and wrote her own book about some of the icons that shaped Chicago. The book is called Energy Never Dies, Afro-Optimism and Creativity in Chicago. Afro-Optimism. What better way to start the conversation than that? I asked her to read a little from the introduction. Let's see. I see. Oh, see, see why you got to do that one? <laughs> You're trying to start something. You know how many, like, like. Real Twitter beefs I, I got in over this. I really love that spring piece, and I just, I just need that. Okay. <laughs> Black Chicago is defined by self-determination and the belief in the improbable. We believe that, despite reports to the contrary, we are not yet dead. And perhaps, as curator Leslie Guy surmised, we are on the verge of spring. If our Black American ancestors had not believed in the possibility of a better tomorrow in order to just keep living— I shudder to think of what the world would have missed out on. Self-defeatism is easy to get sucked up into, but belief in an alternate reality is the escape hatch, if only in our own minds. You go on to talk about Mm Afro-optimism, which is in the title of the book. 
right. um, as opposed to Afro-pessimism. Right. Can you talk about all of that in the context of the art and creative work by black Chicagoans? So Afro-pessimism is funny, right? So when that term <laughs> came out as being hot, I mean, it's been out for decades, but it became sort of a kind of a catchphrase and very... It well, rubbed me a little wrong when I read it. I was like, wait, hold on, what are we about to be talking about here when yeah. I saw it? Yeah. Well, yeah, so it's in, in the Academy, a lot of folks are using that term as a lens to see the world, just believing that the fact of our blackness dooms us is essentially mm. what that is. And I'm like, I just feel like there is sort of a luxury to even fix your mind to think that because there's too many people who are just really focused on hierarchy of needs, making it through the day. Mm. If you feel like you're defeated, I just met a girl at a bar, 24 year old girl, sweet as a button. She wants to be an esthetician. She's got a degree from Clark Atlanta um, and that degree didn't work out. So now she's working at Walmart. If she believes that she's doomed because of the fact of her blackness, what's next for her? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Does she try again? Does, does she, she try again or does yeah. she keep on moving because you don't have any choice but to keep moving and believe that there's something better for you? Mm. Most of the people who, and you know, y'all can send your letters to rundown at WBZ.org. <laughs> However, like most of the people who really purport this concept of Afro-pessimism also happen to have advanced degrees, you know, and are somebody's ancestors' wildest dreams. So mm. let's just start with that point. Go off. <laughs> um, speaking of our ancestors' wildest dreams, I mean, talk about some of those Chicagoans that really embody that Afro, that Afro-optimism. So, I mean, you name it. I know growing up in Chicago and the Chicago land area and being a black person, there, there were so many, like, fairy tales, honestly, that we heard, but those fairy tales were real. Like, these people, long list of people, maybe big people, maybe not people, maybe Shaka Khan, maybe, you know, John H. Johnson and Eunice Johnson, the founders of Ebony Jet, maybe, you know, the other Johnsons that <laughs> founded Soft Sheen and the Ultra Sheen people and, you know, hair care people and, like, you know, what I mean, like, the long list, the Harold's Chicken people, mm. you know, and, and, you know, my for my West Side people, the Rickettes who did Uncle Remus. Like, I'm open. Like, Mm. there's all these people that were successful. And that's the other part. So, like, I think a lot of folks who have known the body of my work would have assumed that my first book would have been about music and just music. But honestly, Mm. like, there were so many stories of black folks who, through the dollar, were able to uplift their community Mm. in really powerful ways that I couldn't leave these business people out. And a lot of the time, these business people were funding these creative artistic endeavors in ways that Chase wasn't doing. You know what I mean? First Nat, first, first Chicago wasn't doing, you know, like it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was them and Seaway National Bank. And, uh, you know, the black dollar was helping to further the arts and culture and music that we love so much. So I couldn't leave that out of the story. Mm-hmm. You yourself have contributed your expertise on Chicago art, Chicago culture, and on a number of creative works, documentaries, publications. Your book, Energy Never Dies, um, focuses on this topic, too. And we're always students. We're always learning. But do you remember when you really felt like an authority? You know, it was very slow because I've been doing the Reclaim Soul show for many years. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the interviews would get posted 
to the internet. <laughs> and then what, was, what wound up happening was the interviews started getting cited in books. Oh. And I was an English major, so I always loved to write. I just wasn't really very published at that point. And then I realized, okay, well, if my stuff is good enough to be cited, you know, for, you know, an authoritative text of, um, you know, the Donna Hathaway Live album, for instance, then that means I have something valuable to say. Maybe I should say it in my own voice and not mm. be a hater that somebody <laughs> cited me and didn't reach out, you know, like. Hey, ah, yeah, all the reactions that happened when you found out you got cited. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't mad about it, uh-huh. but I was like, hey, I could be doing it myself and actually, you know, not take, take it in context mm. of the f- whole totality of what I was trying to communicate, yeah. you know, whatever that, that piece of media was. I mean, with radio, we say a lot of words and very little of it is documented anywhere but in somebody's ears and hearts. And even if it's on, you know, even if it's podcast, mm-hmm. people aren't they don't come back and reference it line for line yeah. very often. No, no, no. So when you put it in words, put it in words, put it in text, it really helps those words reverberate longer. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about radio. You came to WBEZ in back in 06. That's right. That How- other Bush was president. <laughs> oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. How'd you get here and what were you up to at first? So I was attending Western Illinois University. I was just getting ready to graduate and I knew I needed an internship. And I knew at my college they had an NPR station. That was so this was after you majored in fashion design? I, 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 was, I was fashion design, and then I finished up doing English with okay, a minor gotcha. in broadcasting. Okay. I knew there was an NPR station at Western Illinois University. That was my first um, interfacing with public media. Mm. I didn't know it existed. And First off, I was mad that I didn't know it. I'm, I'm a smart kid, reading in books, had no idea. Um, and so I said, okay, well, there's a public radio station down here in Macomb. I wonder if there's one in Chicago. And so I Googled Chicago public radio and look, lo and behold, this station comes up and and they had internships and stuff. And I don't know anything about that. So I apply, you know, and I remember they did not consider me, you know, like I, I had a first interview with the internship coordinator, George Lara, and I never heard back from anybody. Mm. And so I call him and I'm like, so I thought we vibed. I know it's rude. You're not supposed you're not supposed to do this. Don't do this if you're trying to get an interview. <laughs> but I was like, I just wanted to know, you know, like, uh, is there anything? Because I just want to know. And I had applied to other places, but this was where I thought I'd want to try and be. Uh-huh. And he, he was like, you know what? You should have a place. And they made up an internship for me. He talked to someone who worked here and they made up an internship. Now, back then they were unpaid. So it wasn't like there was money. But. I was here, and I did not leave. I mean, I just feel like to say don't do that, even though it worked out for you, it's a different era. It's a different era. I mean, there are ways to follow up with someone that are not, I'm going to direct call, like cold call this person. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe a nicely worded email might have been better. All right. Yeah. In retrospect. Well, I'm glad it worked out. It did. It did. Yeah. He was like, you're the type of person we should have here. Yeah. Which was cool. Which was true. Oh, wait. It worked out. Yeah. I outlasted a whole bunch of folks. <laughs> so you ended up working on what was at the time called the Secret Radio Project. That's right. What did that look like back then? Y'all, uh, spoiler alert, it um, ended up becoming Vocalo, right? Chicago Public Radio at that time, it wasn't Chicago Public Media, had a study. And they realized that, lo and behold, 
um, Chicago Public Radio was not doing a great job of reaching the totality of the listening audience, meaning that it was a very specific demo that they were over-serving and a whole bunch of underserved folks, hmm. you know, that were part of the listening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what? Yeah. And yeah. So we know this. We know this. At the same yeah. time, we were pivoting away from jazz at night. We had a, a kind of a crossroads moment. It's like we could do our second service, which we were interested in doing as a jazz station. But actually, let's go out into the community and see what the community wants. Mm. And what we realized was we hit on this mix of music, arts and culture and community as being something that people kind of really were attracted to. And a thing that, you know, is centering audiences that weren't traditionally served in our other service and other products at that time. Um, and also brought people together. So all of those things were, were things that were always in our mind with the creation of what became Vocalo. Yeah. Tell me about the Vocalo name. The lady who named it is no longer with the organization, but she was trying to relate to the Spanish word Zocalo, which is like a public square, which goes back to the talking. So it's sort of like uh, the conversation space, divergent people having conversations with one another. So it's like a play on vocal and Zocalo. Mm-hmm. I like that. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> Speaking of DJing, are a prolific DJ, and you do it with old school LPs. Right. You do it the old school way with LPs. Why? Well, actually, I do 45s, which oh. is like an LP, but it's a single as opposed to uh, you know the LP is the full record. All right, put me on. I don't I don't know the verbiage. Yes. So I do 45s mm-hmm. because I really I mean I have 10,000 records and I enjoy playing records. Do you feel like that gives you more cred as a DJ? Definitely in the beginning. You know, okay. now now vinyl is fashionable and people, <laughs> I would tell the story, but I'm not going to tell that story. But the story <laughs> I will tell is, you know, when I first started out, that was just when a lot of DJs were moving to CDJs and doing that type of thing and starting into the digital space. And you weren't considered a real DJ if you didn't at least know how to spin vinyl. And don't be a woman. You know, in the beginning, I had a DJ name, which I will never tell because... And it's not on the internet. You will never know it. But Ooh. it was a gender nonspecific name because okay. I it was very challenging to get booked under my own name. I was also uh, one of those people who were wearing like a white pleather kangol and little little uh, was it green and white striped Adidas tracksuit because you had to underplay the I'm a chick part of the thing. Mm, this is many years ago. Yeah. You couldn't just be a, a D- I mean, I guess there were the little cute DJ people who had a little mini skirts, but that was rare and that was a novelty. If you wanted to be taken seriously, you come out with a little Kangol and all the records okay. and the wiki, wiki, wiki. And then they were like, okay, she's a real DJ. Because I feel like when I evolved past the what you know about those records <laughs> space, I yeah. feel like I had really arrived. Yeah. Because I was like, let's find out. I don't know. What do I know? (laughs) Um, Public radio itself has historically sounded a certain way. Some stations. Yeah, some stations, not necessarily like (laughs) Reclaim Sold, not like Vocalo, um, the things that you've spent a lot of time working on. And it's prioritized a certain audience, white, upper middle class. Mm -hmm. A lot of your work here has interrupted that. Can you talk about making that a priority and what that has looked like for you? 
It's really interesting because I think that there's a way to center non-traditional audiences that is still inclusive enough that people still feel like it's for them, Mm. right? Like everything is not about you, but that doesn't mean you can't also enjoy it and be enlightened by it, be entertained, all of those things. If you ask me what a Reclaimed Soul fan looks like, I would challenge you to look at the city of Chicago because hmm. every single type of like description, I mean, six to 86 come to my events and I love your show. Mm-hmm. Like all sorts of all the whole rainbow, everybody enjoys it. Yeah. I'm, it might hit different if you grew up in the community, but just sonically speaking, it, it resonates with folks who, who the music is new to them. Mm-hmm. And that goes to like, you know, the Barbershop Show is a show I produced that aired both on WBEZ and Vocalo and, and enjoyed a couple of different audiences, you know. Um, yeah. And a lot of folks enjoyed that show, but it was really made from like, let's do a black and brown centering um, public affairs show from a West Side Barbershop. Like, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Y'all can turn it on on Sunday afternoons, and I think you'll enjoy it, and you'll definitely learn something about some neighborhoods that you might just drive past, but it is this thing. Mm-hmm. And we're going to honor these audiences. How do you feel that looks now? I mean, in your 20 years in radio, majority of that, spending so much time in public radio. I think it still doesn't happen enough. Mm-hmm. I I think we do ourselves a disservice when we actually connect a phenotype to the universal audience mm. and the a universal experience because by default there is no such thing. Like things are subjective. That's just what it is. Mm. Everybody's experience is very specific. Your your vantage point can actually enrich the story. And I think, you know, in journalism in general, it's starting that's starting to be an accepted thing that there isn't like someone who can completely remove their perspective from a story. But I think there's power and value in respecting perspective without having to be both sides about it. You have mentored a lot of really talented folks in Chicago, hosts and producers at Vocalo. Young people at U Media, including Chance the Rapper, who a lot of people we all know. Um, What is something you hone in on when you're helping people bring their talents forth? Um, Sometimes I think the first step is making sure that they really understand their talents. You Mm. know, what you think you're good at and what you're good at can be two different things. And there might be other um, secondary things that you're good at that actually are going to be the things that will help you take that main Mm. talent far. Wow. So, like, one of my very favorite mentees, I mean, when I hear her name, it makes my heart melt, is no name. And she Mm. was actually an intern at Vocalo. There was a point when she needed to put out that first record. She said to me, you know what? I'm a, I, I, I need to do this record, so I'm going to go work at Freshie. And I was like, don't do that. Come to Vocalo, you know, hang out. I'll give you a little recording kit. We'll chill. We'll talk. Yeah. We'll kiki. <laughs> there was no kiki back then. The term didn't exist. But, you know, we'll, we'll do this, and it'll be great. And we were able to really spend some real good quality time together. You know, she was one of the most invested in black futures and invested in our past and invested in making a better present than anybody I'd ever known, like in her age group. 
And I knew that that was a superpower Mm. to really be that young and be that cognizant of how she fits into the past and how she can help like like be midwife to a future. So when that started manifesting on social media where she was talking her talk, I was like, you better go talk that talk, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, our social media, we can only say so much. Right. We, we right. signed a little contract. <laughs> but I'm like, girl, speak your piece. Yes, yes. I have talked to people who have called you a trailblazer, right? For, for better or for worse. <laughs> Do you, does it feel that big and original to you in that way? I don't think of myself as a trailblazer. I think of myself as being open to new possibilities. Mm. Because some people don't do that. They don't, they, they don't bet on themselves enough. Yeah. They do something that they've seen someone else do. Mm. So when you say open to new possibilities, for, you mean for yourself. Correct. What you can do. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like this whole Vocalo thing, it seemed real far out. But I was like, I knew I didn't want to work at WGCI as much as I enjoyed. Grew up, you know, put a triple dot on that eye. But that wasn't, I knew that that wasn't the place for me. I had to make the place for me. When you think about your work in Chicago, your writing, producing, hosting, your leadership, what are some things that you're most proud of? I mean, betting on people is one thing because, you know, I bet on myself, but I also, I, when I see real effort, like people really want to make a better life for themselves or really want to try this thing, I want them to feel like somebody else is, is like, betting on them too. Mm. I, at the end of the day, it's been a, such a privilege to be in the city that built me, the city that has fed me for so long. And to be able to affirm people, especially people who are not consistently affirmed by the media and by the world, I think that helps me feel like what I'm doing matters. Mm -hmm. Doesn't everybody deserve to feel like what they're doing matters? Ayanna Contreras helped create Vocalo, WBEZ's sister station, and she's the host of Reclaimed Soul, which airs every Friday. She's also an author, DJ, and artist of many media. Ayanna, thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thank you to Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Clee for editing the show. Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks. The Rundown is produced by WBEZ Chicago and is a part of the NPR Network. And we love hearing from you. Email us with your thoughts, questions, and what you want to hear. You can email therundownpod at wbez.org. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.